Thank you for listening to this Podcast One Sportsnet production, available on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. The NBA playoffs are here, and Podcast One Sportsnet is taking you courtside with the best podcasts in the game. Get slam dunk coverage from the best in the biz like Dan Patrick and Rich Eisen, as well as this show, Real Jam Radio. Then turn over for some laughs with Shaq on the big podcast. Hit the buzzer and download new episodes of these shows and more every week on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One Sportsnet. Welcome to Real Jam Radio. I am Daniel Rue, your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. I wanted to bring back longtime friend of the show, Sam Vecini, to talk about what is an extremely eventful part of the draft calendar. Not only have we had the NCAA tournament since the last time Sam and I talked, but also a lot of the youth kind of showcasey events for what will be the class of 2020. So those would be the one and dones next year. So we talk about both of those, kind of what we could see in the lottery, the rise of some guys, the fall of others, a lot of different topics to go through. Episode is brought to you by betonline.ag. Use that podcast one promo code for a 50% welcome bonus. Yahoo Daily Fantasy, you can go to yahoo.com slash daily fantasy. Use the pod 25 promo code for $25 in free play when you make your first deposit. And TrueCar, great place to sell or trade in your car. Episode runs about an hour 15, cover a lot of ground. Also have a little bit of NBA talk towards the end. We talked about the playoffs a little bit, what we've taken away so far. So you can keep a listen for that as well. So hope you enjoy it. Thank you so much for coming on. Yo, Danny, what's going on? Uh, it's, it's that time of year where my brain is dying from having to cover 2020 draft stuff because of Hoop Summit and Jordan Brand and uh, McDonald's and then also cover the 2019 draft where 233 early entrants are now declaring for the draft. Oh, yeah. And uh, we've also got the NBA playoffs. So that's a thing. And the NBA offseason coming up. So it's just that, like, month right after the Final Four and with the Final Four involved, too, that uh, my brain just fries. Yeah, it, it's a lot to keep track of, and especially also with the offseason coming up, both in terms of the draft and free agency and everything else, which is something you and I both focus on. Let's start with 2019. The move at the top of your board and the most recent one that you put out, which was, I believe, during the NCAA tournament, was moving Ja Morant over R.J. Barrett. It does seem like there is... I haven't watched a ton of film on those guys yet. I have seen them play a fair a little bit, but not, not quite to the level of putting out analysis. And there really does appear to be some eye of the beholder stuff there, especially, I mean, the positions they play are completely different. But from the limited amount I've seen, I agree with agree with the decision that you made to put Morant over Barrett, at least for now. Yeah, I think that it's the practical call that is in line with where most NBA executives are right now. Um, John Morant... We've seen in this playoffs, right, that a lead guard has an inordinate level of value uh, in comparison to other positions. They can just derive a lot more value at the end of the day. Uh, even someone like Lou Williams, if you can put pressure on a defense and play in screen and roll and create for others a little bit and score for yourself, you just put an immense amount of pressure on the defense. And at the the end of the day, uh, John Morant is just the guy that 
he is electric with the ball in his hands with a live dribble. He is, I think, going to step into the NBA. I understand that this might sound like uh, hyperbolic, but it's not. Like I, I genuinely believe that he's going to step in and be, I would say, one of the like six or seven best passers in the NBA immediately. Uh, he just has so many different tricks in his toolbox uh, with both hands coming off of a live dribble one-handed. He'll throw lobs two-handed. Like, he can throw one-handed lobs if he needs to. He's just – he's got every pass in the toolbox. He's got uh, every little bit of vision. The question is the decision-making and the jump shot. Uh, I think the decision-making – is going to even itself out. Like there might be some times early on in his career where he struggles a little bit, but the shooting is the big question because as we've again seen in the playoffs, if you can put pressure on a defense by knocking down shots off the dribble as a lead guard, it just gives you an inordinate level of value in the playoffs. So John Morant right now, he can knock down shots if you go under a ball screen on him, like he will pull and, you know, probably hit them at a 36% clip, something like that. He has NBA range already, but he doesn't really have like the dynamic, like pull up game going forward or at high speeds yet. It's more like he'll meander around a ball screen. If you go under, he'll stop and pop. So being able to do this at full speed is a little bit different than being able to do it at, you know, 75% speed. And it's the differentiator in, for instance, what makes Damian Lillard unbelievable. He can turn his hips in midair and can uh, get his feet set going toward the basket and then rise up and somehow be in line with the basket. John Morant doesn't really have that yet. And that is, I think, the number one thing that I worry about going forward. Does he develop that skill set? That ties in with... I mean, one of the big differentiators in the playoffs, you brought up, you know, what a guy can do with the ball in his hands is how much panic does that player instill in the opposition? Lou Williams is a great example here. Like Lou Williams, if he gets an advantage, he can turn whatever has been conceded. Or, I mean, he can also create out of nothing, but he can turn that into something positive. You know, usually because part of that is because he's such an adept foul drawer. You know, like, I mean, John Morant is, is, a, is a more talented athlete than Lou Williams, but I mean, the skill level that Lou has developed over the years is really incredible. And right. there are lots of different ways to do that. I mean, one is by being great with your first step or coming off a screen really quickly or having such a great handle like Kyrie does where you can generate space or you can just pull up on a dime. And so Morant, I think there are kind of two elements of this for a young guard. One is getting your calling card. So that is the thing that you do that freaks other teams out so that, okay, they're going to try to take that away. And if you don't have that, it's a lot easier to defend. And then the other one is a counter for the most straightforward way that they will attack that they will try to defend you and so that could be you know like getting getting a step back getting a you know like snaking the pick and roll it could be a lot of different things and generally speaking college players high school players aau players don't have to do those things because you don't play opponents the same amount and you're the opponent quality isn't near that level so it's not a surprise that morant has to do those things it's but that doesn't negate or deflect the requirement to do so. Yeah, you know, it was interesting. Florida State uh, played John Morant in the second round of the playoffs, and Florida State actually is an interesting simulation for what an NBA defense looks like. Because while they are not 
necessarily like the world's best defensive team. They have, have genuine NBA athleticism all over the floor. They have genuine NBA length all over the floor. And whenever you put that in a com- condensed area, that is the college offensive half court zone, right? It's just smaller than what the NBA zone is. You know, you start screens from 24 feet away from the basket as opposed to NBA teams where, you know, sometimes you're starting at 28 feet, 30 feet away from the basket. So what Florida State did, John Morant hit them early in the first half with a bunch of threes. Uh, he think I, I think he made five in the first half just because they, they decided, hey, we're going to start playing him by going under ball screens. Eventually what they decided was we're actually going to come out, hedge him on the ball screen, make sure that he can't shoot direct behind the screen, but we're going to give him the mid-range, basically. We're going to have our uh, tagger, our guy coming over and the help in the pick and roll, uh, just come over to the basket until our big man can recover. As soon as our big man recovers, we're not going to have him recover uh, direct on to someone like Morant. We're, we're going to have him essentially give Morant the 18 to 12 foot range and see what he can do with it. And Morant struggled with that. I think he went 2 of 15 from two-point range in that game. His numbers look great, but uh, there were genuine concerns that arose. And I think that, you know, he's still 19. Like, this is part of the development process for him. He's going to figure it out. It just is there, though, that he's not this, like, perfect point guard prospect. Like, Trey Young is a better prospect than what John Morant was. John Morant's a better athlete. But Trey being able to pull up from 30 feet, it's just so dangerous. Trey also is a better in-between game with floaters. I think they're pretty similar in terms of passing ability. Um, like he's To me, John Morant is like if you gave Dennis Smith elite-level vision. That is kind of where I'm at on him because Dennis Smith can knock down shots off the catch at like actually a pretty reasonable clip. He's just not necessarily the world's most elite pull-up shooter uh, stopping at full speed and getting uh, a good look at the basket and knocking down shots. Morant is kind of similar to that in a lot of ways. Now, you gave Dennis Smith elite-level vision. He's an unbelievable prospect. You know what I mean? Like, he is uh, everything that we hoped he could be coming out of NC State. So I just look at John Morant as he's a very, very good prospect that I would be happy to take, like, fifth overall in a normal draft. Like, uh De'Aaron Fox, for instance, is another guy he's gotten compared to. I think De'Aaron was a little bit faster. Uh, I think Jaws probably, again, a little bit better of a passer. De'Aaron's a bit more of a natural scorer, maybe. But I, I would be happy to take Ja Morant as that level prospect. Uh, at number two, I do think there are expectation concerns, maybe, that like could, uh, could cause issues. Lots more to talk about with Sam, but first a message from betonline.ag. There's so much going on right now in sports from playoff action in the NHL and NBA to baseball going on in full swing. And a great way to get in on the action is to go to betonline.ag. And what you can do is you sign up for a free account at betonline.ag and use the promo code podcast one for a 50% welcome bonus. Whatever you are into, I mean, there's with sports right now, you got everything from the upcoming second round, which I'm so, so excited about. 
and hockey's been incredibly exciting as well. Two, if you're into non-team sports, there's a lot of cool stuff on betonline.ag and all over the place. So whatever you're interested in, you can also do in-game betting, which is pretty cool. So if you, you get a read on something early on and you want to test that out. So you don't need to sit on the sidelines anymore. You can get in on the action. Use the podcast one promo code or text BETNOW, B-E-T-N-O-W, to 238-669 to receive that 50% welcome bonus. BetOnline.ag, your online sportsbook experts. When that gets into something else that I wanted to discuss, which is the line between number one and everyone else, because so there sometimes it's... Uh, by, by line, do you mean the chasm, the right, Grand right. So, Canyon size. So, so, so like, like going back to like, <laughs> let's say Anthony Davis, like he's a, he's a good example of this, where the idea was whoever gets number one, even if he overlaps with position or whatever else, Anthony Davis is so much better than everyone else in his draft class. You just take him and figure out the rest. For you, is Zion, is the gap between Zion and everyone else like that? Or are there situations kind of more eye of the beholder or team that's loaded up on bigs that could or should consider someone else? No, everyone should take Zion Williamson. Everyone will take Zion Williamson. So, you know, for instance, Phoenix has probably the biggest need at point guard in the entire NBA, right? Like, that's it's probably right. Maybe you could make a case for, like, the Bulls, but it's probably Phoenix, even with Tyler Johnson there now. Um, I wrote, basically, uh, in my son's column, that I wrote last Friday, like, hey, you know, James Jones does really like John Morant. Uh, you know, I, there are sources around the NBA, like people around the NBA, are buzzing that, you know, maybe the Suns would prefer to end up with John Morant, but they're not going to take John Morant at number one. Like, that's just not, it's not going to happen. So whenever I wrote that, people took it out of context. Uh, for instance, uh, NBC like wrote like this thing and did it extraordinarily poorly and said like, Oh, uh, you know, we're just commenting on the rumor. Like that's, that's ridiculous. The whole thing was reported. It wasn't just the one thing that I wrote about John Morant. Like nobody is going to take John Morant at number one. John Morant is probably the only player that I think would be in consideration to pass it because of the intense heights of his game. Uh, you could maybe make a case that a scouting department could decide, hey, we just really think this guy is going to be an absolute superstar. It's just not going to happen because there are so many more considerations that go into selecting a player at number one overall whenever Zion Williamson is involved than the scouting. Uh, Zion Williamson, the team that selects them, is going to sell millions upon millions of dollars in merchandising compared to anyone else in this draft. They are going to get, genuinely, I would bet you that they get double-digit national television games next year. If it's the Cavaliers, who I think have maybe the worst-built long-term roster in the NBA right now, they are still going to get 10 national games next year because Zion Williamson is that kind of draw. Uh, you know, Zion Williamson is going to help with your attendance as a organization. There are just 90 other factors that will make Zion Williamson the number one overall pick. And then you get to the scouting and the scouting says Zion Williamson is very, very clearly the best player in this draft. Like it's not even debatable. Uh, 
he can really, really pass it. He is maybe the best athlete to enter the NBA since LeBron. Like, that's an actual case you could make. He is a defensive nightmare. Like, his ability in help side defense and his unique combination of explosiveness and strength, he's just a beast switching out onto guards. He's a beast protecting the weak side of the rim. He creates action plays with his hands because his instincts are so good. Then you throw in the fact that, you know, the ability to shoot has continued to develop over the years. He's done great work on his jump shot. Uh, just his ability to drive. He is, he has the ability to change direction and change pace. And his first step is faster than anyone else's at 280 pounds. So there, no one else is going to take anyone. No one is going to take anyone but Zion Williamson at number one in this draft. If anyone did, it would be because of something unforeseen that we don't know right now. Like such health, health related, presumably. Yes, like his medical reports. Like if a team comes back and does not like his medical reports, and it would have to be to a high level. Like they would have to think he, his body is going to start breaking down by like 23 years old. Because that's like probably right around when his rookie contract ends. He's 18. He'll play all of his season at 19, 20, 21, 22. Um, then you have to pay him money, and that's when his body starts to break down. Like, I can see a case where if a team thinks he's going to start breaking down at 23, you maybe don't take him. But if it's anywhere even after 23 in terms of long-term value, you still take him because he is so much better than everyone else. It's just that's the kind of standard that I think Zion Williamson has set in this draft. Furthermore, if a team felt that way, and for whatever reason they felt differently than some others, the most likely outcome would be that they trade out of the number one pick rather than someone else other than Zion went number one. No question. I think that's 100% right. They absolutely would trade out of that pick and Zion would go number one. I mean, it's just like... It's so very obvious. And like, look, this comes from me, like talking to executives around the league. Like, Zion Williamson's going number one, unless uh, medical reports come back disastrously for him. An important and striking part of this draft, and you wrote about this in in kind of the text part before your draft board. And it's amazing because we've talked about this for the basically this entire year since since we knew who was going to be in the 2019 draft class is that outside of that top group, and you could argue, as you did, that John Morant, you know, if he was, if he could be fifth in a different class, that that things would look a lot better. But really, outside of even, let's call it the top three, it is remarkable how few players have really elevated their standing relative to everybody else. Now, there, now I think there's been some separation, especially with some of the guys that did well going into the Final Four and everything else. But it's not even just like, oh, you know, positional value or what skill set you need. It's just that I, like when I've, you know, the limited amount of college I've watched, and obviously you've watched a ton more, the draft is much, oftentimes about that positive case, that affirmative case of like, oh man, this guy does X and that's going to be so awesome. And it's been shocking to see these, some of them talented, some of it is just that this group isn't as good, just not define themselves that way. Yeah, um... This has been a 
frustrating draft class in a lot of ways. Like there are guys that have helped themselves. Like John Moran has helped himself. Kobe White has helped himself substantially. Jackson Hayes has gone from like, you know, a guy that people thought would be a first round pick in three years to being a first round pick this year. Brandon Clark has helped himself. Um, you know, those, those are probably the ones that like stand out as potential lottery picks, but everyone else has just been like, nah, like everyone's just, Kind of there. You know, Jared Culver's helped himself too, I should say. But, like, DeAndre Hunter basically is what he was. I had him, I think, at seven on my pre-draft board, and I have him at four now. Like, he was the, the top returning player. He's now the second highest returning player um, that came back to college basketball this season. Darius Garland got hurt after four games. You know, he is what he is. Cam Reddish struggled pretty substantially. Nasir Little didn't start at all for North Carolina this year. Romeo Langford shot 28% from three. Um Kevin Porter got suspended and missed like eight weeks with a thigh bruise. Um, Rui Achimura didn't really improve defensively uh, much in the way that we would have hoped. Uh, Keldon Johnson just doesn't have the burst athletically that we hoped like maybe some Kentucky weight training would really, really help. Um, you know, Bobo got hurt and played the world's worst defense I think I've ever seen a center play in college basketball. Like, you can run through the guys that, like, we thought would be there early in the year, and more often than not, these guys have disappointed. But the thing is that no one other than, like, Morant and Culver and Kobe White have really stepped up because, like, you're not going to take, just with the way the NBA is now, you're not going to take a Jackson Hayes at number, you know, seven in the draft. Like, you shouldn't do that. If someone did, I think it'd kind of be a mistake, even though I like Jackson a lot. And like his game, like Brandon Clark is the guy who's like the analytic darling right now. Like people think he is, uh, should like be in consideration in the top like three or four. We don't know if Brandon Clark can do anything offensively yet in the NBA, uh, other than just be like a pick and roll big man. And he'll be effective at that, but like we don't know if he can do really do anything else right now. Be a great defender, he'll finish above above the rim, he'll finish the basket, but like the jump shot is really messy and I mean, you can put ball on the deck a little bit, but you know, he's not a guy that's going to be out here like creating plays for others like crazy or, you know, you put him in a short roll, he can do some stuff when he has some space, but it, you know, he's not like a crowd passer either. You know, PJ Washington is kind of limited in a lot of ways. Like these, there's just no one that has actualized on their unique tools yet. Like I thought Casey Apollo from Stanford was going to do it. Six, eight wing, seven, three wing span can really knock down shots from distance, but Stanford's situation is kind of weird because they play this like funky defensive scheme and, they only take like, like threes and twos, which in college is a little bit easier to guard than it is in the NBA. Like you can do Mori ball, but not in the way that Stanford does it, where they don't have anyone like really jump stop in the mid range. They won't always want their guys to get to the basket. So it's complicated, man. Like th- this draft is evaluators in the NBA are going to be making their money with this draft. So like, I'll give you an example of this. Uh, I was at hoop summit and I won't say who the team was, but you know, I was at the Nike store in uh, Beaverton and I caught a ride back uh, with, you know, three executives who work for a team. <clears throat> and I said, yeah, it's like kind of a bad draft, you know, like it's hard to, it, it's, 
it's hard to uh, de- like figure out who are the guys that you're going to want to have in your scheme and develop, basically, because so many of them are such unfinished products at this stage. And, and you know, what he came back in, or what the highest ranking executive in the car came back and said was, you know what, like our GM just always says, hey, you know what, there are no such things as bad drafts. We just got to go find the guys. This is a year where the evaluators who can go find the guys that particularly work in their developmental scheme and work within their culture uh, are going to make their money because this is this is a tough one. This is a really, really tough one. What makes it so striking is how high that thought process starts because, like, for example, I was writing my Spurs offseason preview today before we started recording, and so they have two picks in the second half of the first round. It's not a surprise to say you have to find you have to find guys there, you know, get fit, getting fits. If you can get a starter, great. If you, but if it's a, a valued reserve on a rookie scale contract, that's you know that that's a success. It's a different kind of success, but that's a success. That's usually the mentality, for, and I think fan bases in particular get a little bit overly enthusiastic about those picks. They think, oh man, we're getting we're getting a starter, we're getting a star in the twenties. The the challenge with this draft is that that thought process starts at like five, and that's crazy. That you know, so the, these picks that are supposed to be, you know, like for me, when I'm thinking about somebody in the six to ten range, let's say you're hoping for a reliable a starter. starter. If yeah. they can become a star, that's awesome. If they can be a valued reserve, you're not happy about it, but you're okay. And that will happen. I mean, there will be certain players that fit in with that. But it's so crazy to be like players that we're genuinely unsure are going to be NBA starters going that high. Yeah, like the median outcome between six and ten is, you know, something like a fourth starter, I would say. Like good player, valuable piece, probably not on average at least going to send you into the stratosphere. You know what I mean? Uh, that's fine if you uh, – uh, every player is very different, right? Like some of these guys are big lottery tickets, and you know that going into selecting them. Like we're going to take a shot on developing this guy. It might just totally flame out. Some teams like to get your DeAndre Hunters who are going to step into the NBA and be able to play immediately and probably be pretty valuable. So it's it's a complicated mixture of the two things, I think. Um in this draft particularly, you know, you, you can look at DeAndre Hunter. Like, I think DeAndre Hunter is awesome. I love DeAndre Hunter all year. Uh, like, I, do I think there's an outside chance he's, like, one of your top three guys on a team? I do. Like, I, I do think that upside still exists. Like, I think people probably shouldn't totally limit him in terms of upside. But at the end of the day, you're probably getting Damari Carroll with DeAndre Hunter. Like you're probably getting something like that, like getting prime DeAndre Carroll for the Atlanta Hawks uh, when he was awesome for like a three year stretch. If you can get that guy for eight years, that's super valuable. That is an incredibly useful piece. Um, Kobe white. If you told me he was like better trying to think he's hard. Cause he's like kind of, he's kind of Lou Williamsy to me. Um, Lou Williams has obviously developed all sorts of craft and become this incredibly useful piece with the Clippers. But like for a while, Lou Williams was your run of the mill, super high level sixth man and not like a guy who is probably a top 50 player in the NBA right now. Um, like you might, you might get like previous career Lou Williams. That's just what Kobe White is. Cameron Reddish, you might be getting a star. You might be getting someone who is not someone who really helps you win basketball games. 
It's your little same deal. Like Romeo Langford's the craziest one. Like you told me Romeo Langford could shoot. I think he is like a top five pick, but he shot 28% from three this year and now is having thumb surgery to potentially correct a problem. I mean, like how he shoots in pre-draft workouts is going to be incredibly uh, valuable in terms of input for NBA teams because they need to know, does this guy have actual touch to be able to knock down shots uh, from distance? We know he can do it around the basket. He's one of the best finishers in the entire entirety of college basketball. But the shooting from distance is a real question in large part because he loads into it differently every time. He has a very unnatural wrist bend uh, going into the shot. It's there's just a lot of mechanical stuff he's going to have to improve. And then, oh, wait, we still don't know if he has the actual touch to be able to do this. So um, there are a lot of like high upside hit or miss guys. There are some guys that, you know, I think are probably pretty good role players. Like I think Brandon Clark's probably going to be around the NBA for a decade. P.J. Washington probably going to be around the NBA for a decade. Teams just need to figure out, like, what are we going to value here? Are we going to value uh, are we going to value getting the sure thing or are we going to value getting a useful piece? There is a base logic that some people use in a class like this that has a lot of players that are around the same expected value. Let's use the, let's use that term that a team towards the top of that or, you know, like of, of that group. And I don't know how deep it goes. We'll talk about that in a minute. But there is a logic that you won't see a lot of movement within that because if all these players are about the same quality, teams will just take whoever they like best and it's not good. there's not going to be much jostling or anything like that. Because of this group, from what I know so far, I could see the opposite taking place. And what I mean there is that teams develop such strong opinions while, while the expected value is still relatively close. And teams will evaluate players differently as they always do, both because of preferences and just seeing different things. I could imagine there being more movement in this group, not only because of the players that teams like, but also because of the players that they do not like. And so if you're sitting there, so sometimes that is, you just don't draft that guy. You know, that's for whatever reason you think Kobe White just isn't your, isn't your type of prospect. So you just don't take Kobe White. That's the easiest way to do it. But we could also see some teams that are just like, well, we like Kobe White. We know what we can do with that. So why not give up, you know, the asking price might be smaller, but if we can give up, you know, like a, a decent young player or a second round pick or something like that, like that's going to be such an interesting question for me is like, does, because these guys are closer in value, does the asking price go down and that actually increase the movement in, let's say the back end of the lottery? Well, think about it this way too. Say that you end up with Romeo Langford at number five on your board, which I, I think that is possible for someone like it's not likely, but like, I think it's possible. Say that your top four is Zion, John Morant, RJ Barrett, and then like Jarrett Culver or something like that. And then you have Romeo Langford evaluated at number five. You get down to number 12 and Romeo's still on the board. All four of the top four have been taken. Your next guys are DeAndre Hunter, Darius Garland, Kobe White, Cam Reddish, Nasir Little. So that's, that's your top 10. You have only the number five guy on your board remaining out of your 10 favorite prospects. You're sitting at, you're sitting at number 17 or so. Pick 12 is up. It's probably like pretty worthwhile to make a move like that. If that, if that's really like how you think. Whereas another team, like you could have Romeo Langford at 20 and I'd be like, I get it. Like I totally understand it. He's skinny. You know, if he doesn't shoot it, what is his offensive role? If he doesn't, you know, uh, is he going to be a reasonable enough 
defender to derive value just as a driver cutter and you know uh, defender. It's it's so complicated this year. The uh, the values of players for me are very close in thinking of things in terms of an expected value analytical side of things. I would not move up for a player in this draft uh, unless you're able to move up and get Zion or, you know, unless RJ Barrett falls to like five or something. And you think that, you know, RJ is the number two guy in this draft. Uh, I would not be moving up for players in this draft. Realistically, just I, I wouldn't want to pay the price at all. That's also always the challenge. You know, like I talked about the idea of lowering the asking price and that facilitating movement. Generally, that's not the way these things work. You know, sometimes it, it can happen. But I mean, even going back to the huge Mavericks Hawks trade last year, Dallas paid a serious price. And I mean, you could argue, as I would, that it was worthwhile because Luke is amazing. And they got who I had as the number one player on the board. They got him. They gave up what looks like it'll be a pretty good pick and a pretty bad draft. And from Atlanta's perspective, it sounds like they had those two guys for logical reasons, given their structure, though I think Luca would be wonderful there, that they had those guys closer. And so for them, the difference between the two wasn't as stark as it is for as it is and was for Dallas. So you could say, oh, well, then maybe you lower your asking price. Well, I don't I don't think Atlanta necessarily did that. And I think that's a good calibrator for how these things usually work. You know, there are exceptions the other way, like I was thinking back to, and granted, this did, this didn't necessarily work out for Sacramento in terms of the guys they drafted, but like the Zach Collins trade, because in that circumstance, like there was a kind of a common consensus that Collins ended up was the last guy of his tier. And so, yeah, you want to give up a little bit more. Incidentally, the best thing that was given up in that trade was, well, no, that wasn't, but no, I'm thinking the Marquise Chris trade because that was the Bojan Bogdanovich thing. Same, same logic though. It was the Marquise right. Chris trade. And so, like, basically... Well, like, Marquise Chris goes number eight. Uh, the the Suns were at number 12 or 13. Yeah. And they moved up trading 13, 28, and Bogdan the rights Bogdanovich. to Bogdan Bogdanovich. Yeah. Yeah, for number eight. Because they thought Marquise Chris was... Oh, boy. Mar- Marquise Chris was awesome. Yeah, and and so, so I don't... By, by the way, I had Marquise Chris at, like... 15 or 16 on my board. I'm sitting there. I'm like, what are you doing right now? This is bananas. That was a class that I don't think I evaluated very much, but I saw, I remember the first time I saw Chris in summer league, I just went, Oh God. Like, cause you could see the, the defensive problems there and yeah, he's physically talented. And it, it's also, I mean, the way that these things work is we get better at what we're doing. You know, hopefully you, you start to identify the, the mis- like I, I've had this, ex- I've used Dragon Bender, sorry to pick on Suns draft picks this much for in rapid succession of how for me, my mistakes try, I try to make my, allow my mistakes to make me better. And so it's like thinking of the theory of the player, how, how is all this stuff going to work? And so that's another interesting part of this. And teams are always doing the same thing. So will they miss on the same type of guy twice? Sometimes, sometimes that's worth it because it was, you know, it was a ceiling play and they just didn't reach their ceiling. And so I'm, I'm just fascinated to see how this works in the class. And you brought up Brandon Clark. I think Clark is, is a really notable test case here on a couple of different fronts. So he's not particularly tall. So this isn't a circumstance of like betting on a defense only player. That's like Rudy Gobert sized, you know, like that's something no. different. He's no, he's, he's like six, eight, yeah. 
I would honestly say he has like a plus one or two wingspan. Like you're not right. talking about like a physical freak. Um, right. And, and, and I, then he's like I, 225 pounds. And I would guess that the theory – and I haven't watched – I will watch film of Clark. I have not yet. That the theory of Clark is that he he will be a better playoff defender than regular season defender just because things get smaller. They get more active, switching, all that kind of stuff. And then you're making a bet too, like, because, I mean, we're seeing a little bit of this in the playoffs already of these really good regular season defenders that once you ratchet up the skill level and whether that's as jump shooters or drivers or any number of these things, guys' value changes because the league structure, the playoff structure changes these things. And more importantly than that, sometimes the talent changes things. And so that would be a really fascinating bet to say this guy, you know, he can be, he's going to be an amazing defender and maybe, you know, maybe he ha- you could tell me he has defensive player of the year tools, even in the regular season, but we haven't seen those type of players go high in the draft very often. Right. And if Brandon, if I trusted Brandon Clark, like with any degree of certainty on offense, I would be right there with everyone. I would be like, this guy is so awesome. This guy is like, I thought he was one of the three best players in all of college basketball this season. I just really worry about the offensive translation. Cause I don't think that he's going to be able to shoot it from distance. I just like, he's, he's worked really hard at it. He's literally tried to revamp his jump shot over the course of the last like two and a half years, realistically two years since he's been at Gonzaga. And it just hasn't – the mechanics look 90% better and they're still like hitchy and a little bit worrisome. So like I really, really want to like Brandon Clark. I think he's an awesome, awesome dude and an awesome, awesome player. I think that he is going to be able to defend in the playoffs at an extraordinarily high level. Um, he's very switchable. He has great help instincts, not just good help instincts, great help instincts. Uh, he is an elite level finisher above the rim, but it's, if he can't shoot, you can't space the floor. It limits what you can do to build the rest of your team. Like you basically need to surround him to have a successful NBA playoff roster with four other shooters. Probably like you probably have to have four other guys who can really knock down shots. That's why I love the Minnesota fit the best. Like, you can surround him, you can put him at the four with Carl Towns at the five, and he'll like make up for a lot of what Carl does, right? Like he'll make up for, uh, you know, Carl's struggles with weak side defense and Carl's, um, still developing instincts guarding away from the basket. Like there are, you know, Carl got better this year at all of that. Like he actually did make real substantial leaps defensively, but, there, there is still usefulness there to having a guy like Brandon Clark next to him. It's just, it, it really limits what you can do in terms of building the rest of your roster if you want to have like a super high level offense. Right. And think about what happens if Clark does not reach that level defensively. I mean, then you're talking about somebody with the, with the offensive game that's limited and is a backup, but not a particularly valuable one. You know, like those defensive yeah. identity backup bigs, like that's not a really a thing anymore. I mean, like there, there are certain players that can, that certainly make a difference, but it's a much more dangerous thing than let's say like a backup point guard. Okay. Well then if he plays 15 to 20 minutes a game, all right, that's not, you know, that's not a necessarily a 20, $20 million a year guy, but at least it's like a five, five to 10, you know, like the best backup point guards really do provide some value in the league. 
And that gets into something that I think is fascinating with this class right now and with your board. So you have Zion, obviously, at the top. No, no arguments there. But then kind of this combination of Hayes, Clark, and then I don't know. You, you'll you have to tell me how to classify P.J. Washington at this point in terms of, is he just a four? Like, what is he now? Uh, kind of a pure four. Yeah. Cause yeah. Like, he actually can shoot it now, which is very That's useful. Good. Um, you know, if you played him as a small ball five, like, I think that there might be some equity there long term. Like, if, if he can really, like, put on some strength and, uh, be able to maintain his lateral movement skills, you can maybe make a case for me that he might have some flexibility down to the five. Then you have a gulf, basically, from those guys to that collection with the kind of the, the probable first-rounders, but not probable lottery picks like Bull Bull and Gafford, those type of guys. And and then Jonte Porter is somewhere uh, with his... I, I will say this. Like, Goja Bichadze is somewhere in that... Like, I would probably have him at, like, 20, 21, 19, somewhere in that range. So, so I don't know his uh, game at all. What, what makes him stand out? So Goja, if you go through and look at his numbers and he's doing this in Euro League right now, so the highest level in Europe. Uh very, very impressive level of production. Like just like maybe a level below what uh Nikola Jokic did in his year uh after he got drafted, where he was like the Adriatic League MVP and dominated and you know X, Y, and Z, right? Um Bichadzi is a six uh, eleven guy with long arms. Like he actually has legitimate length. Uh, can step away and shoot it a little bit. Like he is s- sort of, kind of, like a bit of a, um, like I would say like there's a little bit of fake shooting there, right? Like he's very limited attempts, 66% from the line, never been a 70% free three-point shooter, shot 21% from three last year. Like the, there are real worries there, but you go through and he's doing this again in EuroLeague, 12 points, Six rebounds, two blocks a game, shooting, you know, 55% from the field. The production is genuinely there. The question is, he is, he used to be extremely slow footed. He's now no longer extremely slow footed. He does have good instinctual awareness of, you know, where to be in drop coverage defensively. He can maybe take like a slide with a European guard and, and, you know, cut him off and then try and recover. In the NBA, I don't think he's going to be able to do this. Like, I think he is going to get hit pretty hard in screen and roll coverage just because, again, screens start so much farther from the basket. You're put on such a different island. But if you're a team like, let's say, Brooklyn, or if you're a team like – or Miami that's willing to play a little bit of zone, or if you're a team like um, Milwaukee or Portland and you're willing to play super drop-up – drop cover or drop – heavy coverage in screen and roll, there's real value there. It's just whether or not his value is uh, worthy of the playoffs, basically. Just as a quick aside, I'm going to express my preliminary frustration that there is a Jalen McDaniels and a Jaden McDaniels, one in this class, one probably in the next class, because I just think I'm going to have so much damn trouble with that. Uh, the good news is that Jaden is a lot better. Okay. So you're not going to have to really worry that much. Um, Jaden, yeah, J- they're brothers, obviously. Um, Jaden is like Kevin Durant starter kit, like 6'11", can create separation, can knock down shots, but 
it's all like kind of on a curve, right? Like he's 6'11". He can shoot for a guy that's 6'11". He can dribble for a guy that's 6'11". He, uh, you know, is acrobatic for a guy that's 6'11". But the problem is that he's 190 pounds right now or like 185 pounds right now. So you can just push him around all over the place. So if you can guard him, so like at, at Hoop Summit, there's the scrimmage every year and the U.S. team that played Jaden McDaniels, who was on the other uh, scrimmage team, they guarded him with Cole Anthony. Like Cole Anthony is six foot three and like pretty good defender when he wants to be engaged. But if you can guard him with a super smaller guy, it kind of takes away a lot of the value. Yeah, that's a, a very important part of it. And I, I've talked about this as, as great of a player as he is, Draymond Green. One of the reasons you can defend him with a smaller guy is that he never developed a post game, and so. You, he, right. he, he doesn't attack. He doesn't really attack those size mismatches in the way that theoretically someone could. And I mean, and this isn't necessarily like Stephen Jackson defending Dirk, where the the logic is like center of gravity, strength, that kind of stuff. It's just that they can't take advantage of what the other guy is conceding. Right. And here's the other thing with Jaden too. Like if he gets stronger and if he just starts ironing out that consistency with the jumper as he gets stronger, oh boy. There, there's a lot there that, like, he could take a big leap in six months and be like, holy shit, this guy is a problem. This guy is unbelievable. And that's what's so exciting about these, you know, 17, 18, 19-year-olds is that they can really make these steps forward. John Morant, I mean, just went through a big step forward. There are, there are a bunch of examples of it. Sometimes it happens when they're in the NBA. Sometimes it happens when they're in college. And it, it's beyond just adjustment, just skill, strength, all those sorts of things. Before we get on, I have uh, two other things I want to mention. One... I'm a little bit disappointed that Trey Jones is going back to Duke just because I think I'm a believer in his brother too. Like I just think those guys can be utilized in the NBA and I I feel badly that Tyus has been marginalized in Minnesota. Some of that's unusual because Derek Rose having this resurgence took away some of the necessity there. And I think Trey Jones can step in pretty well into that kind of a niche. And I mean, sure, you want to go back, players have the, have the right to do whatever the hell they want. But I don't know. I, I, I'm excited to see what another Tyus Jones can do in the NBA. The problem is the Tyus came in being able to shoot, at least to like a that's reasonable true. extent. And Trey just can't shoot right now. Like that, that's, the, that's the serious problem that I think is going to cause issues for him. The last question I wanted to ask you on the 2019 front, this is presumably the last time the two of us will discuss, will talk on the show before the lottery occurs, just with the nature of the playoffs and everything else. And sure. I'm not trying to get you into trouble here, but we can go top three, whatever you want to do for whatever purposes you feel comfortable with. How would you like to see the lottery play out? You can get outlandish if you want, or you can get, you know, grounded and make it more the teams that have a good shot. But I mean, with equalized lottery odds, it is, it is a little bit more fun to get ridiculous. Just as a note, before we go, I, I was on I was on Tagathon running their lottery simulator, and two of the first four I got, I got New Orleans getting the number one pick with their own pick, and I got the Sacramento pick going to number one, which is the most insane scenario because only in that scenario, which is a one percent chance of happening, that pick instead of going to Boston goes to Philadelphia. That is probably my favorite option. Uh, I don't think it's going to happen, but like putting Zion around 
all of those dudes and then making Philadelphia's front office figure out how to make it work shooting wise is the most fascinating uh, potential outcome in the NBA. I think uh, that is just the most potentially hilarious thing. I think um, in terms of reasonable stuff, I think Atlanta, like I, I would love to see Zion and uh, Trey Young and John Collins and Kevin Herter and, you know, even to an extent like Torian Prince. Like I think that that would be the most fun landing spot. Like Trey Young navigating an offense with all of the dunkers and all of the spacing because we know Travis Schlank is going to surround him with shooters, right? Like no issues there. Like he's going to have enough space to operate. But man, th- that's where I'm at. Like I want – I think I want Atlanta to win. I think that would be the most fun thing for me. Um, well, I have a second one, and it goes back to something we talked about months and months ago, which back when Kristaps Porzingis was on a different team, we talked about Zion and Porzingis together. I think Dallas would be so much fun. I, I don't know if it yep. would work necessarily, but you have Luka, Zion, Porzingis together. If for whatever reason that trio doesn't work, then you have two of them on the floor and you're just still wrecking everybody. And I don't think Zion takes away anything from them and adds a ton. I think that would be really interesting. The team that Porzingis used to be on, the Knicks, like that, there are tantalizing elements there because not only A, how does that affect how these players are thinking about free agency, but B, how do the Knicks approach that? Like they might be one of the only teams that would seriously consider trading the number one pick, not for, you know, like a boatload, like the Michael Vick, LaDainian Tomlinson type of thing, but for Anthony Davis. And that's crazy. Like you think about all the possibilities and the free agents that might go to New York. So I think those are, those are probably my top three. And there aren't that many that I, I just really don't want to have happen because the teams that are, I mean, there are organizations that I kind of don't want to see him with just for, for a bunch of different reasons, but I think Zion will make a lot of situations better. And so there, there's definitely an argument yeah. there. Like an example is, is Washington, like Zion on the wizards would be fascinating. And how does that affect Bradley Beal's willingness to stay, their mentality on rebuilding? I mean, eventually John Wall's going to be back now. That team is pretty locked in cap-wise, so that would make it a little bit less dynamic. But yeah, I mean, Zion does that. I mean, like, I've thought about Zion and and Jaron Jackson Jr. Like, that would be crazy. It'd be really interesting to see how all that could work out. The Zion team. and Carl Towns. Oh yeah. Oh, that'd be that'd be so much fun. I mean, that's similar to the in some ways to the Zion Porzingis idea of you know like a guy yep. who can floor space at the five. You don't have to worry about it. The two spot is tougher for me. Morant. I mean, so so we're talking kind of like where should Morant and Barrett like where could they end up? And I don't you know I don't have any destinations. I have more I have more that I don't want to see actually in some ways than I do. And that happens sometimes with guys that are more extreme. Like I've worried about the even though Colin Sexton looks so much better in the second half of the year, especially the last two months of the year. Barrett and Colin Sexton playing together just gives me cold sweats. Like GA the idea of just like where that offense goes from there. And I, I think Barrett on the Hawks would be we like could could Lloyd Pierce and that system take train out some of the stuff. Yeah, maybe that would be a way to get to like the best RJ Barrett, but it could also be, you know, one of those circumstances where he's just a little bit too RJ Barrett for that team. So those sorts of things. And then Moran, it's really more about who needs a point guard. And so I would love to see Chicago get an upgrade. His fit with Booker would be fascinating. Now, there you if you have Morant and Booker if Aiton's best defensive system is switching, well, good luck with that. But offensively, you could build a really, really fun team. Yeah, no, I agree with that. Um, trying to think. 
there's anyone else that I think like makes like weird sense for Barrett. Like put him with Andrew Wiggins in Minneapolis or Minnesota. Oh God. <laughs> well, what I was thinking was, um, I mean, we don't know what, what the Grizzlies are going to look like, but if you put RJ in Memphis, they're going to need some time to figure all this stuff out and they're going to have a new head coach. Now, maybe that ends up working out. Maybe he can kind of explore the studio space for a year or two. And then by the time they have the resources to get the other players on the team, they'll know what they have in RJ. I think that could be an interesting fit. Where do the Lakers fit into all of this? Well, I think they're, they would actually be a compelling fit for a high pick because I'm not super optimistic about how they're going to do in free agency. And so I want to see... If you're, the, if you're the Lakers, do you trade the pick for number one? Or for or Anthony Davis, I'm sorry. Probably. I mean, especially... So I've talked about this in different capacities before. Part of what makes a Davis trade interesting right now and why I think it's going to happen on or around the draft is because even if the deal is agreed to and not consummated, which is generally the way this would work, theoretically, getting Anthony Davis before free agency starts, for whatever team does it, if that's a team that has functionality, it totally changes the way the free agents think about that team. So if the Lakers get Anthony Davis, a player, let's say Jimmy Butler or Kemba Walker or whoever else, they're not just going to play with LeBron. They're going to play with LeBron and AD. They're going to a likely contender with when you add that player in. And so, yeah, I probably, you know, not if it's, not if it's number one. I mean, if it's, no, I, I mean, I, I think then you, if, if they get number one, maybe then you roll the dice and say, Anthony, just, just don't, don't resign anywhere next year. And we'll just put you with Zion and LeBron and just say, okay, world, let's see what happens. That's a weird fit. It's That's a like super a weird fit. Strange one. But at the same point, wouldn't you want to see it? Oh yeah, of course. Like, I mean, that like that's an, that's a more extreme example of what I said about Dallas. So like even if their top three doesn't work, any two of that combination is just going to wreck the world. Yeah. So, no, I'm definitely here for that. I, I, the Davis part of this just adds so many wrinkles because all these teams, not only I mean I, at Boston, I mean you have the circumstance where Davis, Dave, whether they get Davis affects you know Kyrie affects Davis, Davis affects Kyrie, all those sorts of things. Boston has the most assets. Some of those have shifted. I mean, we don't even know exactly what's going on with the Memphis pick. You know, depending on if a team jumps in, then maybe Memphis loses that pick to Boston. So then Boston can trade the number nine pick in a deal as opposed to this nebulous future Memphis thing. Though that pick actually, I would say, gets more valuable if Memphis retains it this year. Like Boston. Or like the Sacramento pick, too. Like they could end up at like four or yeah, whatever. Yeah, sure. I mean, that, that pick is about a 5% chance of getting into the top four. So, yeah, that could absolutely happen. And... Yeah, it's, it's going to be wild. And my hope, well, I mean, just by the sheer numbers, like something weird is going to happen with this. Just because, I mean, you have all of these teams, let's say, for, so the teams that tied from 7 to 9, they, they ended up all having the same record. So what that means is you add their lottery odds together, and then you basically just have tiebreakers for if whoever doesn't make it in to the top four. So collectively, New Orleans, Memphis, and that Dallas pick, collectively... Each one of them has a 26% chance of jumping into the top four. And while it's not, you know, plus, 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 you know, because there are all these connected factors, that's a pretty high collective chance. Yeah, I mean, it's not like, it's not a non-zero chance. You yeah. know what I mean? Like, it's it's something worth calculating, at least. Yeah, it, it, it's going to be fascinating. And I, and a lot of these teams, like the bottom being as 
open as the rosters generally are. You know, Atlanta Atlanta's locked up at point guard. Phoenix has a few different guys, and I don't. I, Chicago, I mean, they have a lot of interesting guys, but I don't know that they have anybody for me that is in, like that is just a locked in piece. Like if you got a, a great player at their position, you just you would just pass on that opportunity because you have like Wendell Carter or Lowry, and I, I like both those guys. I like I like them both quite a bit, but. They're not that type of guy. So what that means is a lot of teams should, maybe not will, go best best prospect available, and we'll have to keep an eye on that. Yeah, the only the only teams that I think might not, like I can see Washington, like not going for a guard. You know what I mean? Like they already have John Wallen. They're trying to keep Bradley Beal for some reason that is beyond my comprehension, but uh, you know maybe they decide not to go guard. Like you can point to like a couple examples. You know, particularly at the center position, right? Like Memphis probably shouldn't take a center. Um, Phoenix definitely shouldn't take a center. But the good news is that these things do tend to line up with where the organizations are. Yeah, they, they often do. Still more to talk about with Sam, but first a message from Yahoo Daily Fantasy. It is one of the best times of year to be a sports fan. You have the NBA and NHL playoffs underway, both getting into the second round. And on top of that, Major League Baseball and golf are starting to pick up. If you want to get closer to the action, Yahoo Daily Fantasy is for you. Yahoo Daily Fantasy offers single day and week long contests so you can pick a new team every day. Yahoo Daily Fantasy also has the lowest management fees across the industry. Don't play with the other sites that charge high fees just to play. Yahoo's lower fees mean more prizes for you to win. To get started, go to yahoo.com slash daily fantasy and find a contest that's right for you. You can try a 50-50 contest where the top half of the field wins, or you can try Yahoo's innovative quick match feature where they will pair you with another player of your skill level. You can play a quick match contest for free or for cash, but the best part is that there is no management fee, so you keep 100% of your winnings. Of course, you can also try a larger prize, bigger bragging rights, in a guaranteed prize pool contest. Use the promo code POD25, P-O-D-2-5, for $25 in free play when you make your first deposit. Sooner you get to playing, sooner you can get to winning. So go to yahoo.com slash dailyfantasy to start playing today. Also have a message from TrueCar. Every car comes with its share of stories. That dig in your bumper when you nervously picked up a first date, the luxury package you got after a big promotion, or the mileage you saved by riding your bike all summer. While you cannot put a price tag on your stories, now with TrueCar, you can at least find out what your car is worth when it is time to sell or trade it in. Just go to TrueCar, simply enter your license plate number, and watch how your car's details pop up. Then answer a few questions. Navigation and moonroof? Watch as they bump up your value. High mileage? You already knew it was going to cost you, but now you know how much it dings your wallet so you can plan ahead. Once you are finished, you will get a true cash offer sent in minutes, which you can take to a local certified dealer to cash out or trade in. So, when you are ready to experience a better way to sell or trade in your car, check out True Car today. True Cash Offer, not available in all states. If you're struggling with alcohol or drugs, Recovery Centers of America can help. The holidays are over, the new year is here, and the time to act is now. Expert private care at Recovery Centers of America will get you on the road to recovery today. So call 1-888-RECOVERY-NOW. At our fully accredited, world-class treatment center in Monroeville, Pennsylvania, you will be treated with compassion, dignity, and respect by our dedicated team of professionals. You will also benefit from specialized programs, 24-hour medical care, and the comfort of our outstanding facilities. Let us help you. We will answer your call 24-7 and can get you into treatment as soon as today. If outpatient care is right for you, you can receive a same-day assessment and attend therapy in person or virtually. 
And because we accept most private insurance plans, you get premium care without the premium price. Don't wait. Start your new year. Start your new life today. Call 1-888-RECOVERY now. That's 1-888-RECOVERY. Let's talk a little bit about the 2020 class. You've been doing some work on those players, Jordan Brand, Nike Hoop Summit, McDonald's, all of that. And so we can kind of go big picture, though I do actually want to start with a single player. But like, how is, actually, before we start with a single player, how is that class looking overall, let's say, relative to how you felt about the last couple at this stage? So I would say that it is the class I feel less least good about going into this. Uh, so so we've worse, been worse than what while. became the 2019 class? Yes. Ooh, we went in. We went into the 2019 class thinking, hey, R.J. Barrett's probably a very real number one overall pick. Uh, Zion Williamson, Cam Reddish, and Nasir Little, these guys are legitimate top four picks for where the NBA is going. We had some concerns like throughout the rest of the lottery. Those concerns still exist. We had some concerns about depth. Those concerns uh are improving, I would say, as guys decide to just go for it. Um, in this 2020 class, the number one player I have right now is James Wiseman. I really like James Wiseman a lot. I think he is one of the best defensive prospects I've ever scouted. James Wiseman's also center, who might not end up being anything more than, like, the eighth best center in the NBA at any given time, unless he, like really improves offensively. Cole Anthony is number two. Cole Anthony, uh, very productive, ball-dominant guard, jump shot. He short-arms the jump shot with, like, this strange little mechanical thing. I think that he should improve as a jump shooter at some point. He's improved as a playmaker to where he's becoming less selfish and is uh, starting to pound the ball a little bit less, but he still really pounds the ball. And, like, he might not be anything better than the 10th best or so point guard in the NBA at some point. Anthony Edwards' upside's absolutely insane. Like, he's 6'5". He is just a freak athlete. He's improving as a shooter. He's at number three because the production isn't really there. His team uh, generally struggles. Uh, Like, I, I don't necessarily think I can blame that on him. But, like, some college coaches that have seen him are like, yeah, I don't know how much he affects winning. And then beyond that, man, like, we already talked about Jaden McDaniels. Like, you told me Jaden McDaniels went number one. Wouldn't be surprised. You told me he dropped, like, to 15. Wouldn't be surprised. Uh, Denny Avdia is a uh, Israeli forward. Kind of like a, a poor man's Luka Doncic in a lot of ways. Not as good of a shooter, not as good of a passer, although he does make some of the same advanced reads. Um, it's like maybe a cross between Dario Saric and Luka Doncic, maybe. The guy um, that, when I read your description of, of Vija, my, my thought was Joe Ingles, but more athletic and probably a kind of, shooter. Yes, that's where it's at right now. But like Joe wasn't an NBA player until he started shooting. Right. You know what I mean? Um, Scotty Lewis is my personal, like, favorite prospect that I just love watching. I love being around that dude. Um, I've met seven. He like offensively, there are some real worries. Like he's an inconsistent shooter. Who's like a straight line driver. He passes the ball. He plays unselfishly, does a lot of really like valuable things, but he's not like some 
like crazy, uh, you know, offensive prospect or anything. He's an elite level defender, like one of the better perimeter defenders I've scouted. Six five, seven foot wingspan, very very useful. But like th- that's where we're at though. Like these guys have even more questions than most of the guys heading into the 2019 class. Right, and it seems like to me, from from what I've heard, not only from you, but from other people who are at the summit, is that, generally speaking, the, not the, the absolute floor, but, like, that reasonable floor level is lower with some of these guys, just because, like, I mean, we, we, the caliber of athlete is a little bit different, and even somebody like Cam Reddish, like, there were, there was this idea that even if he doesn't become everything, like, you could still use somebody who can shoot at his size and all that sort of stuff, whereas there are players in this class where it just might not work out at all. Yeah, no, uh... This class is very interesting in that I think there are some, there's some depth in this class. Like, I, I don't know that the difference between like number four and number like 18 in this class is wildly high. Like, it's, it's probably closer than what we've seen in the past. But, you know, that, that creates some interesting depth. It doesn't really, really create like game changing talent, I think, at the top at the end of the day. And like, there are some guys that I think are pretty interesting that are returning that have some real upside like Isaiah Joe and AJ Lawson and you know Io Dasunmu and Jalen Smith and you know we, we can go up and down the lineup. Those guys are interesting. Another aspect is that the international class is really, really good in the twenty twenty draft. Uh Theo Maladon is a guy that I think looks very intriguing. Six foot four, lightning quick, like electric basketball player um but he's more open floor right now like as a point guard he's you know useful in the half court is like a catch and catch and shoot guy but like he doesn't really shoot it off the dribble yet doesn't really put pressure on the defense like that so you know it's class that i feel is even more up in the air than the 2019 class and i feel like that class is even particularly up in the air wow yeah, and, and what excites me about a group you you talked about the 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 depth of this class is that they do have a long time to figure it out. I mean, you have the summer circuits, and then they're most of them. It's their first college season. Considering your current, you know, the twenty twenty mock that you put out, your first returning player was at twelve, which is pretty incredible. Granted, we'll see some guys return in all likelihood. But something else that excites me about the upcoming class, and it's largely true of the one that we're the twenty nineteen one that we're focusing on right now, is again, it's not super big heavy, though the number one guy in the class is a big for sure. Yeah, it's not like crazy big heavy. Uh, you know, you, you could throw Jaden McDaniels as like sort of a big, but he's definitely more of like a four, like playmaking four kind of guy. Um, Precious Precious Achua is like a nine foot standing reach. Again, probably more of a four. But if you told me he was like a super energy five that can step away and shoot at some point, I wouldn't be like all that surprised. Isaiah Stewart's your next true five, just the most productive guy in this class. Uh, just he's also an undersized center who's like six nine maybe with a seven foot four wingspan, but you know working on a jump shot, just not quite there yet. Jalen Smith's like a center to me. Um, you know, Vernon Carey is the guy that, like, is just way lower on my board than I would imagine everyone else else's board will be. Uh, 6'10 center, very skilled, probably average, like, 15 and 10 next year at Duke. But, like, his game is just not at all the way the NBA is going. And I think that that is uh, something we have to account for now. Like, a, a big-bodied center is just not going to be all that valuable. 
Something I want to ask you about Wiseman. I mean, his defensive toolboxes is definitely there, there from what I hear from for a guy, especially his age. But what do you see as kind of the archetype? You talked in, in your little write-up of him that not really a, f- a full switch guy. So is that maybe more of like a hedge and recover or maybe something like Joel Embiid, but he's not, I, I mean, he's kind of a, not quite the same player, but that's sort of an, that's sort of a concept of a modern center defensively. I'm sorry. You're talking about Wiseman, right? Wiseman. Yeah. Yeah. I think Wiseman like probably is going to be, he's going to be at least a hedge and recover guy. Uh, he is like very athletic for his size. Like he is, he has great feet. He has very good lateral quickness, but he's also seven foot one with like a seven, six wingspan. And, just an absolute monster away from the basket. It's more like a you're going to use him like you use Clint Capella. Like you'll sometimes use him as just like a straight switch guy. Okay, so he's probably, closer to Clinton Jaron Jaron Jackson yeah, Jr. than to than to like the more ground bound, the more more interior based fives. Right. Like you probably don't want to like have him on an island realistically, but you're not like you're not feeling like it's a disaster if he is. That's encouraging, especially because you never know where Wiseman's game is going to go over the next year. So he, he's playing for Penny, right? Yeah, he's going to go to Memphis. I mean, he played for Penny in high school as well. So and, and AEU, right, or just high school? And AEU, yeah. Like he, he's very familiar with Penny Hardaway. They're going to run a bunch. Um, he's going to get points in transition. Part of the problem with his offensive game is like he doesn't put a ton of pressure on the rim as like a role guy yet. He will, I think at some point, like he has that ability, um, but doesn't do it quite yet. And then like is a post threat. Like he's not a guy who's going to bury you. Like he's not a mismatch guy. Everything is really like 12 feet and out for him offensively. If he's creating for himself, and that's a little bit scary, I think, because his offensive consistency, his ability to handle the ball, uh, I think he sees himself, he's told me this before, he sees himself as more of like this modern center who can be like a Giannis or something. Um, that's just kind of not what he is, I don't think. And hell, if his, if his game can get there, more power to him. But knowing you know what what you want to be and what you end up becoming are sometimes two different things. So that that'll be right. Worth. Like it's it's not the worst thing in the world for him to work on these skills. Like he should right. work on these skills. Yeah, I mean, I I'm a ardent proponent of the idea that basically everybody should work on guard skills when they're young because even if you end up not being a primary ball handler or something like that, having having a, a more competent handle, being able to like dribble and look for a pass at the same time, like those those are benefits you see it from a guy like Marcus Ole. You see those benefits even if the player doesn't have it all the time. Yeah, no, 100% right. So like just just have these skills, work on having a perimeter game, work on having like valuable tool set basically it's it works i think we're a little less than a month away from the lottery and that will define a lot of these things and also the combines right around then and numerous other things so really what are you looking for i mean you're probably actually going to focus a fair amount on the nba playoffs now with the youth circuit being done a little bit like what are you watching what are you watching for over the next couple weeks and whatever level of basketball you want to talk about <laughs> um i will be watching a lot of nba stuff yeah i'll be watching a lot of the nba playoffs um i'll be watching a lot of tape on like bad basketball teams in the nba like the Cavs, like chicago um atlanta uh, i'll do some uh some of the bigger like scale off season slash like year in review draft board 
stuff, et cetera, that I've been doing for everyone so far, or at least for uh, New York and Phoenix so far. So that'll be coming out. That'll be what I'm watching. I mean, in regard to what I'm watching for, like, I'm just very interested in the Warriors Rocket series like everyone else, I think. As long as Lou Williams doesn't go off two more times. Honestly, like, I would love that. Like, I am here for the Warriors dynasty ending if it's by this Clippers team because it would be a hilarious, like, thing if the Warriors, who long just, like, f***ing hated dealing with that, like, Chris Paul, Blake Griffin, DeAndre Jordan Clippers team, uh, just, like, wanted to absolutely take them behind the woodshed and just, like, end them every time that they played them. Uh, if that, if the Warriors lost to this Clippers team led by these, like, gritty, you know, awesome dudes like Montrez Harrell and Lou Williams and Pat Beverly, that would be just hilarious and awesome, and it would be just super cool, I think, too. It would be an amazing thing. I don't expect it to happen, but, I mean... The way that the Clippers have battled, the way not only just in terms of like keep fighting when they've been down, but going after loose balls, winning the rebound fight against a team that has so much more talent than they do is important. And also, I think the Clippers have been a good demonstration of embracing what you do well, like the the going with Lou Williams and Montrezl Harrell on the second unit, like and Doc changing the starting lineup. You know, going with Jermichael Green at five, at the five. I think that's significant as well. And I mean, he's Doc has has acquired himself really well during these playoffs yeah i mean it's not even just during the playoffs like i said this sure. earlier on uh dave dufour uh nerder she wrote uh on the podcast that's on the athletic uh network now uh what doc has done this year is unbelievable like you can just look you know across the hallway it's staples center and see the way that in an organization that is very clearly planning for the future, like the Clippers have like four guys that are realistically like surefire bets to be there next year. And you can just look at the way that somehow Doc has kept all of those guys motivated, kept them all together, kept them uh, just running in such a competent manner and kept their culture is extraordinarily strong as it is. Uh, it's it's just totally remarkable. Like you look at it compared to the Lakers, who were also very clearly trying to maneuver. The Clippers traded their best player midway through the year because they thought it set them up better for the future. Um, the Lakers obviously tried to you know move a lot of their better players for someone that they thought would help set them up better for the future long, long term. It's just kind of incredible to me that Doc has held this thing together in such a competent manner like it's it's really impressive and then like you said he's uh ticked all the right boxes and pulled all the right strings uh just on the court as well against the warriors like that i think he has done like a hundred percent he would be in my top three for coach of the year i think you can genuinely make a case that he is the coach of the year in the nba uh my guess is mike budenholzer wins it and it'll be well deserved when mike budenholzer wins it but like what Doc Rivers has done, the degree of difficulty on what Doc Rivers has done is so unbelievably ridiculously high, and he has threaded the needle and just nailed it. Absolutely. And, I mean, Doc has also really moved up my best coach rankings. Coach of the year, best coach, not the same thing, but he's done great in both both respects. And, I mean, especially with the way we're seeing these this Clippers group compete in the playoffs without, and they didn't, obviously, they they 
sacrifice present competitiveness for future flexibility in a great move. I mean, I love the Tobias Harris trade. I love the Zubats trade, even if he's been played out of the series just because he's a talented guy. They gave up basically nothing for him. And I've been sitting there watching this series, you know, covering part of it in person, watching the rest on TV, thinking about how it's wild that with the juxtaposition you talked about looking across the hallway, how much the mystique and the uniforms are changing this. Because the Clippers, right now, they have all these advantages. The teams play in the same arena. Yeah, the Clippers don't have the lineage. They have a better owner. They have a better front office. They have a better coach. I would say that their collective talent is better. I would say they have superior future resources and flexibility. And they play in the same building. It's not like, oh, you play in the same city, but one's, you know, one's that. It's, I, I understand that there are all sorts of reasons, and the, and the Lakers mystique is real. I lived in LA, like, I, I've dealt, I've dealt with all these things. But it's so, the d- disparity between the quality of the organizations has never been this stark. Other, other than when it was the reverse, well, which it was for I was going to say, that there was definitely a point when the disparity was this stark. It was just the opposite way. <laughs> right. And so, you know, at Kawhi Leonard, let's say, like, and, and granted, the Clippers might even be in a new building at some point, but we don't, that's still so far away that we can't even really talk about it. But like, if I'm Kawhi Leonard, beyond the, even the LeBron James of it all, the Clippers, if you want to be in LA, like, that's the team to join. They're, they're put yeah, together. They're put together well. They'll be, and also they have an, you know, yeah, the Lakers have had this competitive advantage, especially when Sterling owned that, that the Lakers were willing to spend what it took. I have no doubt that Steve Ballmer is willing to do the same. So. Oh. Yeah, no question. Like, he'll pay whatever he needs to get a winner. Like, you see you see that dude, like, living and dying with every single moment that happens. And, oh, yeah, he happens to be, like, what, like, one of the, like, 20 most, 20 richest people in the world, right? Or in the United States? Something like that. And, I mean, and and he's, the the energy and the passion that he pours into it. And, I mean, they've built a really good organization as well. And that, that takes money, that takes patience, that takes judgment, all of those sorts of things. And so, yeah, it is... I mean, when you're seeing the Lakers at the same time as the Clippers are are making all these moves, Magic leaving of his own volition, not telling the owner, Rob Polenka, who hasn't done really much of anything to earn additional responsibility, much less any, getting that spot and it looking like maybe Kurt Rambis is going to step in as another key decision maker there. Like, it's... It's wild. I mean that that you have all of these things, and I mean it's not they there the Lakers have done a lot more right over the last few years than the Knicks have, and they're uh, but I mean you lose the you you lose the benefit of the doubt over time when the group that is currently making decisions keeps on making bad decisions, and so they've made some right ones. I mean clearing the space for LeBron and theoretically Paul George. That worked out, but I mean, the Clippers, we, we know, we have a pretty damn good idea that they're, that they're doing this the right way. Yeah, no, 100% agree. Uh, they're, they're, I've talked so much about the Clippers front office just being incredible. Um, I am a huge, huge fan of this entire, uh, front office. Like, you, you just have to look at, like, the Lakers have, like, two or three analytics guys. You look at the Clippers, they have, like, 10 to 12 or something like that like their scouting department's better they build up this incredible uh just like brain trust of you know lawrence frank who's really good at this trent redden who might not be there next year might end up uh with david griffin looks like that's probably a possibility or a likelihood even um michael winger who just turned down the timberwolves if i read the report correctly right 
Correct. It's possible that some of that is because they, they were, they're hiring somebody with the intention of already having their coach and GM in place. And it's like, well, why would you take necessarily take that job if you're going to have other ones? And Winger should have those opportunities in the near future. Right, 100%. So, like, they're, they're just building up this awesome brain trust of guys that should be general managers or are general managers, past general managers, etc. And it's just really, really impressive to see how incredible an organization can be if it's run properly and financed to win. Like Steve Ballmer will spend whatever. He does not care what it costs to build the best front office in the NBA, and he has done it. Maybe not the best, but like one of the best, I should say. And the proof is in the pudding. I mean, they've done a, a great job building building an asset base, young talent, and all that, largely out of not thin air because they got a lot out of the Chris Paul trade and, and numerous other things. But it has been genuinely impressive. And there is no guarantee ever that setting the table right means that you're going to have a great meal. But it makes it a whole lot more likely. Yeah, no question. Absolutely. No doubt about that. Well, thank you so much for taking time. Pleasure as always. Yeah, of course, Danny. Anytime. Thanks again to Sam Vecini for taking the time to come on. You can read his excellent work at The Athletic. You can also listen to his Game Theory podcast, and you can follow him on Twitter at Sam underscore Vecini, S-A-M underscore V-E-C-E-N-I-E. Love having him on. As I said, probably the next time we talk is after the lottery. That will shift a lot, and the reformed odds are going to be just fascinating to see how that how that comes into play, whether somebody jumps up or shifts the order, however that ends up working out. Presumably, next week's episode will be more focused on the playoffs. I don't really have a battle plan for it yet, but it will come out. We do a new episode every week, and that's a great reason to subscribe and download every episode. Real GM Radio does not come out on a specific day of the week. It's just whenever I get it ready, whenever I can record with the guest. So that's why subscribing is great. Also, you can spread the word however you see fit, social media, in person, say, hey, you like this episode or the overall show. And also leaving a rating and review in the podcast player of your choosing is also is also fantastic. The most important thing you can do with this show and any other that has them is check out our sponsors, betonline.ag, podcast one promo code, gets you a 50% welcome bonus, which is fantastic. Yahoo Daily Fantasy, go to yahoo.com slash daily fantasy, use the pod 25 promo code for $25 in free play when you make your first deposit. And TrueCar, great place to sell or trade in your car. As always, feedback, good, bad, or indifferent, NBA at gmail.com. If you take the time to write it, I will take the time to read it. I do not promise I will respond. You have to kind of take it on faith. I do read everything, though. It goes into a separate folder, and then I only I try to do thoughtful responses, so sometimes it gets put in the pile, and it can take a little while because I'm writing a ton right now, also doing not only Dunked On, but the NBA cast, which I love so much, but it is a lot of time. So I do, though, really value that feedback. It is, it is important for me and something that helps make the show better, and that's something that is very important because... It's listener enjoyment that makes this possible. And while, I mean, um, I love working with Podcast One and Real GM, of course, your feedback, your support is really what makes this go. So as I said, I don't know exactly where next week's episode will head. The second round is just fascinating. So what I might end up doing is just see where the storylines are after a couple games and, and go through it that way. But still a lot of time between now and then. So we'll see. Thank you so much for listening. Take care and make it a great day.
you're struggling with alcohol or drugs, Recovery Centers of America can help. The holidays are over, the new year is here, and the time to act is now. Expert private care at Recovery Centers of America will get you on the road to recovery today. So call 1-888-RECOVERY-NOW. At our fully accredited, world-class treatment center in Monroeville, Pennsylvania, you will be treated with compassion, dignity, and respect by our dedicated team of professionals. You will also benefit from specialized programs, 24-hour medical care, and the comfort of our outstanding facilities. Let us help you. We will answer your call 24-7 and can get you into treatment as soon as today. If outpatient care is right for you, you can receive a same-day assessment and attend therapy in person or virtually. And because we accept most private insurance plans, you get premium care without the premium price. Don't wait. Start your new year. Start your new life today. Call 1-888-RECOVERY now. That's 1-888-RECOVERY.